0: Hi everyone, you're listening to Bath Time's first podcast where we discuss uh, what our team has written about the upcoming fourth issue uh, that comes out on the 13th of February.
1: So in Features we had a chat about the history of the LGBT plus movement as it's their history month now. We also talked about the North-South divide and what it's like to be a Northerner in the South.
2: In Lifestyle we talked about Oscar nominations and what 2019 2019 is looking like for upcoming films. With another contributor, we also looked at how adulting is scary, but also how to cope with it effectively and happily.
1: And in news and comment, we uh, we commented on Japan leaving the Waiting Commission and the international implications of that. More locally, the Bath Abbey took another headline with its new archaeological discoveries, while local news uncovered cannabis-related scandals and how Bath employees took the most sick days, on average, last year. Uh,
0: and finally, for the cover story, we looked at homelessness, both nationally and locally. Uh, here we looked at the causes, solutions... And local influences of baths charities
2: if you want to pick up a copy look for our colorful bath time bins located throughout the su the stv fountain canteen and in front of the
3: security desk in the library hi everyone welcome to our first podcast uh this is the features section and i'm nidhi arun and i'm the features editor for bath time this year we have with us francesco who's the deputy editor and Eve Parker, who wrote a really interesting piece uh, about the North and South divide for this uh, issue, the upcoming issue. And we have uh, Kate as well, who wrote um, a a piece on LGBT.
1: Yeah, it's really nice to have you all here, guys. And uh, it's just really nice to kick off with this section in and it's nice to see how all of the articles kind of like link with each other, even though they treat quite different topics. And I would really like to know more about about the articles that you've wrote and and basically what they mean to you because they all link to personal stories as well. So, Eve, would you mind just like chatting to us for a bit about the article that, you're, that you've wrote?
4: Yeah, of
5: course. Um, so I decided to write the article on the North-South Divide mostly because I had a really long break with no exams and I was so bored. <laughs> I had basically a summer holiday. Um, so I thought I'd actually put my writing skills to use that wasn't in an essay and do something a bit different. And as a person who is from North Yorkshire, um, which people think is so far up the country, which (laughs) I guess it is, but you know, I'm not from Edinburgh.
1: Um, (laughs) Yeah, um, I I used to think it was in Scotland as well. I used to think, uh, sorry, I'm very guilty in that regard.
5: (laughs) Exactly. Um, So I'm from just outside of York, and I was picking up on the major differences of being in the South with the fact that Bath is such an affluent affluent place to study um, and such a beautiful place as well. Um, and the friends that I had made were all from the south. And I don't think I've actually met more than two people who are also from the north
1: In since, the I've whole uni. Yeah, really? since I've been here.
5: Yeah, uh, since I've been here. Maybe I should get down to northern society, but
1: yeah, yeah, <laughs> quite active.
5: yeah I think I've met a girl from Hull and I, think, I can't remember where the other person was from. <laughs> so I can't even name like more than one person. Um, but yeah, I thought I'm going to start write in the introduction and see what I think of it and before I kind of like question if I'm going to do this. But the fact that I was able to pick out so many things already from like the differences in accent and the differences in dialect and how you'd say a bread bun. And my friends would be like, you mean a bread roll? What are you on about? (laughs) And things like that. Um, And even going on a walk around campus and going, oh, should we just go down the Snicket? And they thought I was talking about a chocolate bar. (laughs) And what what were you talking about? (laughs) So a Snicket is like an alleyway I guess you'd say so we either call it a snicket or a slip which sounds really kind of like Oliver Twist in a way yeah yeah, yeah, it's
1: really interesting
5: so it's like really small things like that and then obviously going on to bigger things like education and the fact that um, everyone here obviously Bath requires really good grades to get in Um, and the fact that people's education was so seems so much more organised and put together than mine was and their stories from school didn't have people jumping out of windows and people running across tennis courts naked and stuff like that. So. What cool is it even if you don't
1: have people running around exactly. naked in tennis courts?
5: <laughs> Hence, like, we were put into special measures. <laughs> so, definitely inadequate. But the fact that I then looked into statistics and it was so much like more likely that you would go to a good school if you lived in the South. And the fact that distance just makes that difference in education, I just thought that was
3: incredibly fascinating. That, that's very interesting because, like, as an international student, when I think about the UK, I think about London. Yeah, exactly. And there's so much more to the UK than just yeah. London and surrounding areas. Yeah. I literally didn't even know about it. Yeah, Absolutely. That's very
1: After five years, my dad still believes I live in London. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, not quite that. Exactly. <laughs> not quite.
5: So, like, international students obviously just see it as yeah. the bottom of the country, basically, and yeah. specifically London, and then people from the Midlands as well. Like, I've got friends who are from, I think, Coventry and Birmingham, and even they don't really see the divide, because there's not, I don't think they have the same sense of rivalry as, like, there is with the North and the South, Mm. and, like, having chips on gravy is just seen as appalling, or (laughs) (laughs) what was the other thing? Um, Taking a coat on a night out. Like, I would never, ever take a coat, but here, everybody takes coats, it's just normal. Okay.
3: <laughs> Is it just not as cold? Um, no, it's freezing. <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> then why would you take a coat? I don't know. Um, I remember going out for my friend's birthday in February and it was like full on snow and we just went out without coats anyway, oh, wow. with no tights and I don't know, it's just expected. <laughs> it's meant to be like the tough north, I guess, but yeah, that makes
1: yeah. sense. Yeah, it gives that kind of like vibe from like Game of Thrones, kind of like the <laughs> yeah. Starks and like Winterfell, <laughs> yeah. just like we, we do not fear the yeah. cold, that kind of thing. <laughs>
3: in like grim north cities compared to beautiful (laughs) (laughs) bath. Okay, I have a question for you. So if there were three things, the three best things about not Yorkshire, what would you say that is? Ooh, that's tough.
5: (laughs) Um, I'd say it is beautiful. Like where I live, I'm like right on the edge of like the North York Moors and I grew up in like a town where me and my sister were the only children. I lived amongst old people and got loads of free sweets and (laughs) just got to do whatever I wanted and run around fields. Like I didn't do that thing where people would knock on people's doors and go play in the street. Like, that wasn't my childhood, so I had a very free childhood and was just running around in a field getting very muddy. So I love that aspect of it, and I love it now. Um, People assume that the North is generally generally quite a friendly place, and I think Mm -hmm. that is true. Like, people will stop you and talk to you, wherever you are. Every old woman will want to talk to you, (laughs) which I think is something that's quite warming about it. Um, Betty's. Nobody's ever heard of Betty's. Absolutely not. No. Okay. <laughs> Betty's is a Yorkshire tea room <laughs> which is renowned kind of like especially with I'd say Chinese and Japanese people who come to visit. Mm-hmm. And they do like high tea and it's very traditional and very Yorkshire and we go every year for Christmas Eve. And that's something I miss in the south. I think the south needs
1: a little bit of that. I, you mentioned the article uh, about like the price of, of a pint, mm-hmm. and I remember having that discussion with a couple of friends just days ago. What is the appropriate price price of a pint? <laughs> because of course I come from Italy, where everything is absolutely cheaper. In the UK, there is like this not rivalry, but like this kind of like never-ending discussion about like what the price of a pint should be. Mm-hmm. What should it be according to like your st- the standards that you're used to from your hometown?
5: Um. Well, considering that I've seen pints in Bath for about a fiver, I'd which say is outrageous. Outrageous, isn't it? outrageous. I'd say mm-hmm. definitely under two pound fifty. Oh,
1: wow. Under two pound fifty, <laughs> and yeah. that settles it.
3: <laughs> We'd be drinking pints like water, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty
1: much. <laughs> thank you very much, She. Yeah, thank um, you. We're going to move to um, our other feature. One of our other features, yeah. um, which is um, as we introduced before, about LGBT uh, plus History Month. And we have the social sec of the LGBT plus society, uh, Kate, with us to talk about it. Hello, Kate.
4: Hi. Uh, yes. So we decided to work with Bath to try and get an LGBT teacher for History Month. So we did two articles for you. Uh, one was where we had an LGBT, uh, a very concise rundown of the past five, uh, 50 years of LGBT History Month, which was difficult to make it in such a small... <laughs> gap, but we managed it. And then the other one was we um, did some interviews of a couple of our members and asked them a couple of questions about what it's like to be an LGBT student and to be whether that's being out or whether that's exploring your sexuality or your gender identity. And we also uh, helped with the erotica, which, watch (laughs) out for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was really interesting, actually, because I got to talk to... Uh, quite a few people for the interviews. We managed to get quite a good spectrum. So we got uh cis, bi woman, a trans uh, pansexual and a non-binary pansexual. So we've got quite a good spectrum um, to try and talk about what it actually means to be LGBT at uni. Because um, obviously I've had, like, as a gay woman myself, I've got my own opinions. But it was nice to especially talk to people that have had to also question their gender identity. So the trans man I talked to, he knew that he was trans when he got to uni and it meant that he was a lot more stronger in his foundation. He knew what he wanted. He started going to uh, gender identity clinics and he's now recently got testosterone, which is fantastic. And then the non-binary person that I was talking to, uh, they figured out their gender identity whilst they were at uni. So that's a very different experience for them. So it was very much them having to play around with pronouns and having to talk to their friends and see what they're actually comfortable with. And obviously, like... Yes, the society can help with that, but it's a it's a massive personal growth thing. And being at university really does help. Being in an environment where you can be yourself and you can you don't have to worry about people judging you at twenty four seven for maybe going by they them pronouns rather than your assigned at birth pronouns.
3: Yeah, it's very interesting that uh, everybody has different experiences. So there's no like one particular stage in your life that you like, realise something about yourself or learn something new about yourself. It just tr- happens throughout your life. So that's very interesting. Also, something else I learned via your article, I, I mean, I was able to pay more attention, was to uh, the fact that you said people, uh, it, it's a safe environment for people to experiment with their pronouns. And something as small and simple as that can make a huge difference. So I thought that was interesting. Do you want to speak more about that? Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, obviously, when we do our meetings we talk an
4: awful lot about it we try and do like awareness meetings or we even have some stalls so on tuesday we're having a stonewall stall just to do a little yeah. push there um but something as simple as that can really change how you look at yourself because yeah. obviously there's lots of things you can't change stri- straight away but something as simple as maybe change your name to something a bit more androgynous or changing your pronouns can mean yeah. an awful lot to someone and something as simple as if someone wants to be called you know she her pronouns it's a very simple thing for you to do, it's yeah. a very simple thing for other people to do, but it can mean the world to someone else.
1: Yeah. You're, you're allowed to stumble, but... Y-
3: but it's all yeah. about sensitivity, yeah. what the other person wants.
1: I, I remember um, talking to to someone about this, and it's just like also in, like training to like staff members at a university, for example, you should train security to not assume someone's gender because if you if you're like if you have someone who's just like, Oh, I was caught and don't look really well and you're trying to page someone and you're on the walkie talking and you say, Oh yeah, there is this girl here and maybe she's not a girl and you just ruin someone's night. It's just like those little things that mm-hmm. mean nothing to you because it literally yeah. just lits out of your mouth, you don't even think about it, but it destroys someone someone's day at the end at the end yeah. of the day, doesn't it?
4: I mean obviously if you mess up that you know, it's understand we all mess up, but like you can just apologize. Correct yourself. Move on. It's fine. But at the end of the day, if you can say it, like, do yeah. just go out your way, just to be like, oh yeah, there's this person with me. Like, they
3: need they need yeah. some help even. Uh, with with the history thing as well. I mean, we all know history has been cruel to the LGBT plus community, but it's very interesting. Like we never give it enough weight to realize how much it's done and how where we are today is because of this long history. And maybe if things were different then, it would be different now. So tell us more about, like briefly, maybe what are the most important uh, times in history or something that made a difference? So this year is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots.
4: A lot of people don't realise, you know the massive pride parades. The first pride was a riot. It was the Stonewall riot. So Stonewall Inn was a gay bar run by the Mafia in America, because you couldn't have a gay bar unless you had protection. Mafia was a protection. Okay.
1: <laughs> that, that's the point where we had, where it we was were. A,
4: that's where we were. We needed, <laughs> you know. Um, the Mafia
1: was the good guys.
4: <laughs> um, so there was a raid on the gay bar, and they weren't, the Mafia weren't tipped off, so there was around 200 people in the bar. They all got sent out, dragged out, and if you had, uh, you had to be ID'd. If you were wearing uh, in full drag, you were arrested. If you were wearing clothes that didn't match your identity, like uh, if you are a woman wearing male, like more masculine yeah. clothes, if you didn't fit your gender identification, then you were getting frisked up, frisked up in the mm-hmm. toilets and checked what your actual gender was. And normally people would disperse after this was happening, but on that particular night, uh, they didn't. Um, and it's ended up into riots way past 4 a.m., uh, I think the first stone was thrown by a trans woman of colour and it then stemmed on for the next four or so nights. And it was a riot. There was thousands of participants all within the Greenwich Village area and that's why we mark Pride on in July as we do now. Yeah. So when people see, you know, all these, like, banners and, like, saying, why don't we have straight Pride? It's like, well, it's not a massive celebration. It is a celebration, sure, but it's not just a party. It's to mark the people yeah. that have very literally died to get us where we are now.
1: And that's also the point that many LGBT people also forget. They just like, go there, like, yeah, it's a party. like, OK, fair, like, celebrate, because we do have reasons to celebrate now, but at the same time, the very reason why we can have some fun now is because there are people behind us. We're standing on the shoulders of people who have fought and, 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 and lost a lot in order for us yeah. to, to party. And it's crazy how many people just, like, forget that historical element including the media uh, the movie Stonewall is abs- it's about the Stonewall riots but it's completely it's completely like mass marketized and basically cis white gay men become go, go to the fore of the riot when actually the first stone was thrown by uh, a trans woman of color
4: yeah, yeah. and then after that, we obviously had the AIDS epidemic, which once again is one of those things that no one really pays attention to, and that was the problem. you've got Keith Harrow, who was the uh one of the most prominent artists at the time doing uh art pieces trying to d- draw attention to this because it was the largest killer um of men eighteen to twenty five for like a good couple for a year or so yeah. I think I wrote it in the article, but it was a it wiped out generations of LGBT community and it just got completely covered up. Uh, I think Regan even laughed about it when it got mentioned. Like, that's how much it may not... Your inaction doesn't mean that you're being impartial. It means that you're actually causing lives to people to die. And that's another thing people just forget about. It was only in the 1980s. Like, it's not that long ago. But, yeah, it's one of those things you have to remember. And if we don't remember it, then those people died for nothing. They didn't have a legacy to live on. We've got Terence Higgins Trust and other things like that, but the other countless lives we don't really remember.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Kate. Uh, thank you, Eve. You it's been really lovely to have you on our podcast today. Look out for our next issue, which is out in a few days, so get excited. And thank you, Needy, as well. Yeah. And thank you to Francesco as well. Uh, <laughs>
3: and follow us on social media, I guess.
1: Follow us on social media, and uh, we will see you soon.
2: Hello, we're now back with the lifestyle part of the podcast. I'm Darcy, and I'm here with Nicola, our Lifestyle Editor. Hello. Eli, our contributor, and uh, Eloise, another contributor. Um, Eli did an article on films of 2018. So, Eli,
6: hi. Hello. (laughs) Are you well? I'm good, thank you. Very good. Um, So, you know, you've praised the diversity in this year's Academy Award nominations, but you've also had a fair bit to say about the Golden Globes, Uh, in particular Bohemian Rhapsody. Could you expand on your... (laughs) This. Um,
7: the people who know me know that I've had a particular hatred recently for Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> and um, this is based on the fact that the movie is presented as the life and you know the truth about the life of Queens and the band and how it all came together, yet the movie lies bl- blatantly about loads of stuff and rewrites history, which is my biggest issue with the movie at the moment.
6: Yeah, you've, you've said in the article that this movie is supposedly full of fake news. Um, which obviously isn't great considering the current state of US politics.
7: Yeah, perhaps that comment was a bit too political but I do think that making a movie with so many lies and selling it as a true story sets the wrong tone and you know the wrong example for movies to come. Because I think if we portray the people we love and famous people in the most positive way and not shining lights on the issues we might have had, it, we're not being honest and we're not doing the right job and I think that but *Hunger City* being so successful in the box office and obviously mm. critically acclaimed as well doesn't show the right example.
6: Mm. Yeah, like you said, it was extremely successful and popular. Why do you think that was? Even if people knew they might not quite be representative of the truth.
7: Uh, if you look at like reviews online, people, even though they sometimes know the movie is fake, are just so happy to see *Queen* on you know on. Mm. Um, on uh, the silver screen yeah. and they love to obviously the soundtrack is incredible they love to hear all of the Queen's songs and I think there's a part of people who just, just want to enjoy uh, this movie and I think you I know you, yeah. uh, I think it. a
8: lot of people just didn't know that it was like based on Liza I don't really
7: mm. yeah. know
8: like the true story
7: and, like, true. I, I do yeah. think you can enjoy it without like if you forget about the history you can still enjoy it I, I didn't personally but I know loads of people who did because you know Remy Malik gets an incredible performance and yeah. the music is obviously incredible because we all love Queen but I think it works so well because Queen is such a popular band especially in English culture but mm-hmm. even around the world it's such a popular you know Freddie Mercury is such an icon that people have to watch this movie.
2: So with that in mind do you think um, they will win the Oscar?
7: The Oscar is always quite hard to predict because each year they try to be a bit different and they try new things. Uh, overall. Um, they've still shown, quite, you know, a pattern of classic movies they like to give awards to. Now I'm not sure that A Human Rhapsody* will fall into that category, especially with the scandal surrounding Brian mm. Singer, the director, and claims of sexual abuse and Felicia. If I'm right, so I believe the Academy wouldn't really want to give awards to that. And I think, especially hopefully. in the
8: light of like the meeting mm. yeah, of recently,
7: yeah, it, it wouldn't be right to you know, give awards to Brian Singer um, overall. And I think movies are more likely to win will either be The Star Is Born and I mm-hmm. really hope it does because it was a beautiful movie or Roma which leads mm. I think nomination with 10 nominations overall which is yeah. incredible.
2: Also it be very much interesting 'cause interesting because it went on Netflix first which is a a big step for streaming services with regard to the
6: film industry. Um, no, thanks Eli, um, you've been a really good uh, resident cinephile, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cinephile for Thank us recently, much. so it's been really interesting to see what you have to Thank say, you for having me. Um, specific reviews and also overviews, so just quickly what can we expect from 2019, obviously it's a big year with Avengers Endgame, the new Star exactly. Wars film, Toy I, Story 4, I'm so excited and excited I, <laughs> about. I am
7: extremely excited for 2019, it seems like the biggest year for Disney, yeah, they've obviously got Toy Story 4, Aladdin. You've got, I believe, Dumbo, and um, I'm missing Lion one. King. Lion King, obviously. Aladdin, had. I think, Aladdin. Yeah. yeah. And so, it's going to be an incredible year, but I think you've got to look at also more indie movies. You've got, um, if you know Jordan Peele, in his movie Get mm-hmm. Out, there's Us, his new yes. film that's coming out, and that looks interesting. Yeah. And obviously, The Irishman, directed by Martin Scorsese, Scorsese. is coming out on Netflix as well, with massive stars like Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, I believe, so... 2019 should be an incredible year for cinema.
2: You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> okay,
8: so Louise, do, do you have any rebuttals? <laughs> I am really bad with films. I'm like, like my family, some people in my family are like massive film snobs, and I'm just, they're like, I only watch the same three, like, stupid rom-coms. I am the so. same. Okay, well, that's okay because your article wasn't about film. I <laughs> appreciate all opinions here about time.
2: Um, so you're. Obstacle about adulting. Now, as a verb, I don't think it exists.
8: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it's a real word. But... <laughs> no, but it's a real it's a real feeling.
2: Do you think there are any obstacles specifically for freshers you want to warn your fellow first years about?
8: I think it's just really important when you come to university to make sure that you're looking after yourself. Um, particularly, like I struggle with mental health issues, and I think particularly mm-hmm. for other freshers that have that issue, it's just making sure that you do sort of mundane things but also there's just a lot of things that you Mm -hmm. don't really think about before you come to university Um, and just making sure that you're looking after yourself really Mm -hmm.
2: for you personally do you have any
8: coping mechanisms that you might be able to recommend to other people i find definitely in first term as much as i like really have been enjoying university i didn't really get out as much as i wanted to like when you come to university it's a lot of just like work, drinking and sleeping. Yeah. Um and I didn't really like sort of go outside now I'm trying to get out get out for more like walks and mm. do more exercise because I know that, that really helps me. Um and I also found in exams what I needed to do was just get myself out of like my room or even the library like and just sometimes go into town and go to like I've started going to Boston Tea Party mm. and I just remember. spending so, yeah. too much money on coffee. But it helped me get work. You've got tasting cafes though. <laughs> Anyone who doesn't follow Eloise sick
2: <laughs> cafes. <laughs> okay with that in mind do you have any do you reflect back on 2018 um with any like highlights do you think there are moments when you're like yeah I've found a problem I've sorted
8: it out I'm not sure I guess I just going to university is such a massive step that I think just being able to keep on top of things and there, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't keep on top of like my workload and some of my modules I just didn't but In other things, like, I really got out and started joining societies. I've done a lot of stuff like LGBT society and with bath time. And just sort of putting myself out there, I think Mm -hmm. it's really difficult when you go to a new place and you don't know anyone. But, like, I've met some amazing people Mm -hmm. and I think just, yeah, highlight.
6: Something you say in particular in your article is that you've always tried to be as real as possible on social media. So in light of all (laughs) of the recent controversy concerning how can we limit people's use of social media and its effect on mental health especially like, even should we ban it altogether do you have any comments on this in particular for students
8: yeah well there has been a lot of stuff in the news about instagram and like the issues surrounding that and people posting pictures of like self harm and stuff like that and people saying that it's a bad thing but i personally find like i created a private instagram when i went to university and all that i post on it is just about my life and sometimes it's like today is going awful like this morning i was just like i have rice all over my floor because <laughs> like, i tried to fix the water damage of my phone um, just before i went away for the inter semester break and it just went everywhere <laughs> so like today i was just posting about that but sometimes it's also like this is going really well and it just really helps me as like a way of therapy to just see what's going on also
2: with room. that when i when i look back through my posts i'm like oh i did do that when you're feeling down yeah. oh, that was funny like even if it's like a cardi B meme you're like yeah no, that's yeah <laughs> Do you think social media helps films distribution?
7: For my part, yes, obviously, uh, social media is an incredibly important part of marketing now and I think studios have spent a lot more money promoting stuff on social media. Um, But sometimes social media can also um, hinder this movie, I think. Mm. and You look at First Man, which was the uh, movie about Neil Armstrong and the trip to the moon, Um, it was quite criticised on social media, especially by more right-wing accounts because it didn't feature a scene of the planting of flags on the moon. The traditional America is great kind of scene. Mm. And so there was a backlash and boycott that started online, and that quite seriously affected the movie, especially domestically in America. Mm. So I think, obviously, it can help promote movies, but it can also take them down in really sad ways, unfortunately.
2: I think through Twitter is how I learned about the controversy um, behind The Human Rhapsody. Mm. I didn't realise it they'd gone to such efforts of painting his bisexuality as a bad thing, and my boyfriend went and was like, it seems like it's his only downside, which is obviously not true. It was
7: really disappointing that, yeah, they used his sexuality in the wrong way, used it as an emotional plot, and lied, especially about AIDS, and how, well, when Freddie was diagnosed with that, they lied, Mm. to make him more, to build up to a more emotional finale, which I think is not really respecting, obviously, the disease, and just his life in general.
9: Hello, I'm Felix Keen, news editor of Bath Time, and we are talking about a few news stories which are coming out in the next issue. Uh, We have Ellie Carsley with us, who has written a very interesting piece about a study that reveals that organic food is actually worse for the environment than conventional food. And Francesco, who is the deputy editor of the magazine and has also written a piece about recent uh, findings at the abbey following uh, renovations there. Uh, so I think we should start with you, Ellie. Okay. Tell us, <laughs> tell us a bit more about, I mean, what surprised you in this, in this study that you found?
10: Um, okay, so it all started for me is that I'm trying to be as environmentally conscientious as possible um, and make, you know, sustainable choices. And I had the preconceived notion that buying organic produce would be environmentally friendly I just somehow in my mind it all got jumbled together and organic produce was sort of the same thing under the same umbrella as environmentally sustainable activities so when the study came out that revealed that um, organic food is actually worse for the environment than conventionally farmed food it was a bit of a shock to me so um, and obviously has since impacted my choices so yeah
9: so as I understand it the the whole this study reveals that because organic farming doesn't use any pesticides, the yield um, is lower because you have fewer plants or fewer plants survive on the same amount of land. Whilst in conventional farming, because there's a high yield on a small portion of land, there, there's more room for nature, right?
10: Yeah, that's exactly it. It's just about the sort of the yield that they create or they receive um without using pesticides is much less. So they therefore have to use more land and getting the available land obviously entails the deforestation type process, which, you know, emits fumes, etc. that worsen global warming, climate change.
9: Right. So organic food fee, according to this finding, is not, all, is not environmentally friendly, but is it a foe for you?
10: I think it's about making sustainable choices and in order to make that choice. To be more environmentally friendly, you have to think about the prod- the product. So most of the time, organic food is less environmentally friendly because obviously it takes up more land, if that makes sense. Right. So it's not necessarily a faux. It's just not the friendliest compared to conventionally farmed foods. I
9: mean, it's weird because maybe it's also like a marketing thing because, you know, they're already always marketed as like green and... Healthier, yeah. and you just naturally assume that. They I think will there's,
10: be... I think there's a lot of like preconceived notions about organic food that it's, you know, automatically going to be more healthy for you, or under the same umbrella it's like more sustainable, etc., etc. And actually, it's now coming to light that it's not really the only thing is that it, it doesn't use pesticides, so it doesn't have the artificial chem- chemicals involved. So that's ultimately the only reason you would buy it is mm-hmm. if you're trying to avoid. The artificial preservatives, etc., etc., that are involved in the pesticides.
9: That's really interesting.
1: I mean, I've learned something today. Yeah, definitely. It's also about just how, like, organic is just like an umbrella term, and organic is just like automat- automatically equal better, to yeah. better and mm. more sustainable and just like good. And it's just like, no, actually, organic can mean so many things, and some of them yeah. are good and some of them are bad.
9: Because, I mean, a weed on the side of the road. Could be, or it's considered organic, isn't it?
1: I have no idea.
9: Speaking of weed, um, (laughs) (laughs) what a great
4: transition. We're gonna, I'm just
9: gonna mention (laughs) on the same topic (laughs) a few of the local news snippets that are upcoming in the next issue. Police actually discovered a cannabis factory in Bath recently. On the 24th of January, a man was arrested uh, after. 40 uh, to 50 plants were discovered in his flat. And a bigger news story on the local level, as I understand it, is the findings at Bath Abbey, right, Francesca?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is actually a very exciting. It's just very exciting to talk about it. I'm a history geek. I absolutely love history. I live for history. I, I used to be a tour guide in Bath. So I focused a lot on Bath Abbey during the tours. And it's interesting to see what was found in the new studies everything that we see now of the not studies, sorry the
9: archaeological finds yeah
1: that's exactly what i'm talking because about
9: basically what's happening if you if you've moved like if if you've been in the center of bath you probably notice that there are big works going on
1: in the and Abbey. they're kind of like messing up like the the bus queues and everything but th- the things that i found are just amazing basically underneath the, the the floor that used to exist they found another floor that belongs to another century i think it was the yes the 14th century so the 1320s and it, all the colors were was basically completely preserved, and everything was basically intact, just as it was when it was originally built, which is absolutely amazing. And also, they found that the rocks, not the rocks, sorry, the tiles were built, um, and created and painted in Wiltshire, so it's all local, and it's just incredible that, that they just found that. Basically, people have been standing uh, on top of this amazing find for ages for centuries, just like without knowing about it. And also, uh, they found charcoal burials, um, which you could just think just like a person just like dumped into a bunch of charcoal and that's it. But actually, it used to have, it used to have a uh, lot of connotations with regards to religion because charcoal is, um, is basically, sim- is basically assigned to purity. So it's the purity of the body and of the soul of the person who dies. And this is like quite early Christianity. So it's quite really strange, interesting. It? Cause
9: yeah. You'd associate charcoal with Dirt and darkness, and
1: actually, it actually clean. It's actually has cleaning powers. Yeah, you get like charcoal oh, and yeah. oh, yes, um, teeth the,
5: whitening
1: stuff, don't
5: you?
1: Yeah, yeah, and the the facial. There you go. Yes, but also it's re- it's not a very popular uh, ritual to do for uh, for bodies. So it was really interesting, and actually they're still trying to understand why charcoal burials were found in this area because there there are basically no charcoal burials dating from that time um, in in this area. Mm. One other thing, they also found an angel head. And the angel head was interesting because they basically found something that they hardly ever see around here. They, of course, I, I don't know that much about art to know about this, so I basically just read that in the, in the press release. But the angel head, did not have the features of normal, uh, Norman or, um, British kind of like, uh, style. It has like kind of an Italian rena- uh, Renaissance, mm. uh, naturalist style. And b- which means that probably the Angel Hell was built by someone who was traveling from the continent and just stopped here to build this and then left. The, this used to be in the, in the Abbot's, uh, chambers which then got destroyed in one of the restructurations of the Abbey, and the angel head was just dumped, and it was just found recently, which is incredible. Yeah, It's true that that means that we cannot have our graduation in Bath <laughs> Abbey because of this, but at the same time, they found history. It's just like another note to say just how historical and beautiful and full of surprises a tiny, tiny city like Bath can have.
9: Yeah, that's incredible. It is. Well, thank you. That's all the time that we have. Um, if you've enjoyed any of these stories, that will be in the next issue At Bath Time coming out next uh, week. We hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you. Thank you. So this month, our cover story uh, looks into homelessness in Bath. It's the first cover story of the four issues that we've produced um, that doesn't look at a breaking news story or anything that was particularly topical at the point of its release specifically, Uh, but it's something that when we were all coming into our roles that we knew we wanted to cover. So we've done that so that now was the time after everyone was coming back after Christmas and exams.
2: So in doing so we got together a team of five people, um, two editors, Glenn and I, and three contributors, one of whom's here today. Hello Matt. Hiya. Hi. Um, so with our team we got to talk to various charities and different people who had, like, got informed opinions on the matter, uh, which Matt got them to do with. Matt, how did you find writing? Um,
11: Really, really good experience. Um, uh, my way into this was I was introduced uh, firstly to a guy named Cecil at uh, Gina House, who I know Glenn's going to talk about later. Um, Cecil was basically, from my understanding, sort of the head honcho at Julian House in terms of he knows everyone there. He's been involved with it from conception, really. And he introduced us to a guy named Keith, who is just really, really a uh, great guy, inspirational guy, a great story. Um, Keith, about 20 years ago, I think first, uh, or started to suffer from homelessness as a, as a, as a symptom, um, in Bristol, his local town. Um, he lived in one of the, the rougher neighborhoods within Bristol and, uh, drugs, crime, homelessness, they all came to him as, as that was his life. And to see him now working at Julian House, um, having gone through the system at Bristol, having gone to a, a dry house where he was able to uh, abstain from all, all drugs and alcohol and uh, get to the point he was now able to tell his story as, um, this, this, um, leader which oh, the homeless in Bath can look up to is just, it was really inspirational to see. Mm. It was full circle, really. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, Keith's role now at Junior House is, um, I mean he's vital he goes out every, I think it's three mornings a week maybe even four checking all the homeless people he's a case manager he, he works with about 30 clients so yeah I mean he's a great figure at the at the establishment
0: yeah uh, we were chatting to Keith again for, for quite a while mm. um, we as student journalists haven't got a, a brilliant um, experience of interviewing um, but fortunately for us um, Keith just chatted on for for hours and hours, and Mm. told us his story. Absolutely fascinating guy to listen to. Um, You know, typical, like, masculine bloke who, you know, obviously had a a range of life experience, uh, but was telling this really heartwarming, um, really interesting... Positive story. Positive story, yeah, with lots of twists and turns. yeah Fascinating guy. Mm. Um, Yeah, with a a story that um, obviously a personal story, a personal case, but... um, Many of many of the elements of Keith's story, when we spoke to Cecil, we realised that they were mirrored throughout a lot of the clients. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah. That's an
2: interesting trend that you identified about the um, ex-military trend in mm. Bath.
0: Yeah. So Cecil, um, before working at Julian House, worked in the military. Um, so he spoke quite openly, honestly, and, and frankly about his experience working in the armed service. Uh, he spoke about how um, it's a large group of predominantly working-class men that are employed into the armed service straight out of school or college, um, taken from an environment where they're supported from a young age um, in, into the armed service, where everything's essentially provided for them. Um, and in that environment, they also have this kind of darker black humour, um, which is a kind of coping mechanism, I guess, for, okay. for everything they deal with, but quite a, a cultural trait of those organisations. And also, obviously, you know all these these harrowing things that they see on a daily basis, and as part of their their work, and you know what they do. But um, when the you know because of all this, when the, when they leave, um, that structure and that care support system, the, you know they do often find it quite tough. And I'm sure we're all aware, you know, of, of some of these stories that we've seen in national press and on social media and everywhere else. And that these individuals do find it really tough to integrate back into normal society. Mm-hmm. Um, you know again so that, that that's why we do see a disproportionate amount of you know ex-military people that, that are mm. uh, on the streets um and yeah Cecil also told us a story of a guy that we we mentioned briefly in the the cover story a guy that was in the the Falkland war on a, a ship that sunk and you know in his, in his time in the military after the, his ship sank um he, his uh, PTSD the, the failed to recognize that the failed to recognize the the issues that that event had caused, um, so he wasn't picked up, you know, by any of the aftercare systems, by all, you know, by all, all counts. Who, you know, on their records, it was fine to just go back out into uh, society and you know reintegrate and you know live a live a happy life. Uh, but unfortunately for this guy, you know, he found that really tough because of what he'd seen, you know, and then suffered from different employment crises, ended up back on the streets, and and he realised. And you know, just when when you think things can't get worse, when he was out there, he realised that he was really struggling sleeping, obviously because he was he was on the streets. You know, can't imagine that was very easy. But he was looking around the people that he met, the people that were sleeping around him. They were falling asleep quite fine. Um, and then later on, this guy found out that um, it was because they were all they were all taking heroin, and um, the people that were around him, and that that, that substance use allowed them to sleep. Um, so obviously, you know, when you when you're, you're at your bottom and, you know, this seems like the logical thing to help you to sleep because that's what the people around you are doing and, you know, that's when he fell into the trap of addiction uh, and, again, a personal story there but another one that, you know, seems to be a path from, you know, armed, armed service, um, you know, into homelessness and addiction. It's quite well-trodden.
2: Um, Matt, you talked briefly about Bath's problem specifically. Is this, Can you go briefly through...
0: What you
11: found out? It it seems that at the moment, Bath really does have quite a large amount of homeless people. Um, I think in the winter months, the official estimates sort of suggest that there's 25 um, homeless people at any one time in Bath. But the official estimates don't tell us the full story. It's incredibly hard to effectively keep track of everyone that is homeless because sometimes it's only a few nights. Um, Cecil spoke very, very much about sofa surfing. Um, relying on friends when you need to but at the end of the day you're still homeless you're 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 still suffering from the symptoms so, so junior house and Cecil they they give closer estimates to about 60 people at any one time who are suffering um, from homelessness uh, and as such um, it makes it very difficult for the local sort of institutions to take care of these people um, junior house whilst it has you know this fantastic setup um, I think at any one time they can take Oh god, I don't want to misquote, but I think it was about forty. I think in the winter months,
0: For, I, I think it was forty in, in winter. Um, their their own shelters provide yes. twenty, I think.
11: Yes, and they have an extra twenty with, with the church hall, maybe. Yeah,
2: Street Man, Street, yeah, Manchester Street has
11: one. But um, you still have this scenario in which effectively they don't have the supply to meet the demand. there, there is there is still a huge. Problem, which is just a shame at the end of the day, because it, it's an incredibly hard thing to tackle.
0: We were lucky enough to be able to look into those the Julian House, yes, the hostel, mm. um, or the shelter, sorry, that was that's below Mander Street. Yes. you know, I'm sure everyone's quite familiar with where you would wear that yeah. is. You, you definitely walk past it. top opposite a bridge, which probably isn't the most <laughs> ideal landmark uh, yes. to, to place it. But it's it's a really nice shelter inside. It, it, I uh, think it was
11: renovated very recently, but it's incredibly well looked after.
0: Yeah, very well equipped. But yeah, it's a, it's a busy place. And there's people in and out. There's individual pods, so everyone's got their own privacy. Yeah, very but,
11: dignified living space, I'd mm, say.
0: People can take the the dogs in there. Yep. Um, and and what Cecil told us as well is it's all about giving people a space where they can come away from the the you know the issues that the face suffer from homelessness. And where they can be in an environment where they feel they don't have to fend for themselves, where they don't have to be on, you know, on the yeah. defensive or on the offensive, mm. um, and they can just relax and, and kind of breathe again. Yeah. Um, that's definitely what we picked up, you know, in the atmosphere when we were in there, albeit for a brief amount of time. Yeah. But it, we, you know, it did feel quite relaxed, I guess, for, yeah. for what you for what you, you know for what you're dealing with.
2: That's positive.
0: Um yeah. I don't think any of us knew what to expect when we were going into no, that shelter. Um but it was you know, it was quite fascinating.
2: Can you see can either of you see Bath um solving this issue in the next twenty years? So I say that with the context of Theresa May's most recent government putting ending homelessness on her agenda and also the controversy behind a previous Conservative government's decision to change the def- definition of poverty mm. um which effectively according to some people it meant that there was still widespread poverty in this country, but because the definition had, been, had moved the bar higher, um, people living in absolute poverty had supposedly decreased. Um, so going back to Bath, do you really think the city has a chance of changing that?
0: So when when you look at homelessness, I think me and Matt have quite quite different views on this. I think the 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 scale of the problem can can definitely be reduced, mm-hmm. and and with the work that we've seen by Julian House um, and with the that kind of increasing slightly on government agendas you know I'll be definitely flawed um, in the way that they're dealing with it but you know it's on the agenda then if we're talking 20-year timeline then you know I, I would definitely hope to see some some movement um, but because of the nature um, of the causes and the the pressures that create homelessness um, I don't think we can ever say that we can completely eradicate the, the amount of different Set, set of circumstances that lead to people being homelessness. Yes there's big government pressure from reduced social housing and from increased house prices and you know real wage decreases and stuff like this and yes that, that creates an environment where homelessness is possible but there's always these individual uh, quite severe events that, mm. that seem to push people to homelessness mm-hmm. mm. um, so it, it's not it's not something it's not, we can't solve it, we can't blame any specific set of circumstances, yeah. um, but we can certainly reduce it and create an environment where homelessness is much less likely.
11: I think Glenn's point about homelessness coming from somewhere else, I think that's definitely a huge point to address because I think Cecil sort of hit the nail on the head when he told us that homelessness is a, a symptom of a wider issue. Um, it, it's very much a physical condition, I suppose, but at the same time, it's mental. Um, The the support the Julian House can provide in terms of um, the community outreach, trying to get people back into independent living is definitely a way to help uh, and um, lower the burden that these um, individuals are facing on a day-to-day basis. And I guess one's only got to think optimistically that in the the future, they're going to continue to improve and continue to get more people back into uh, independent living. But at the same time, there's so many factors at play. This, this is very much um, something that's based on inequality and, and poverty. And it's incredibly tough to say it's mm. going to decrease or yeah,
0: yeah. reduce entirely. So let's chat quickly then about, um, which is something that, that really put us onto the story, about how the university and how students can help mm. um, at least move us in the right direction. You know, there's, there's loads of us in this city um as, as much as students complain about being skinned which i'm sure we all are um we'll still go on our big nights out we'll still be a happy hour mm. you know do we have a responsibility and regardless of that should we and can we be helping out so that that's something that really put us onto this story initially when we heard about two bba students uh who kind of created a bit of a model and done some research uh um about how how the university can potentially be the solution um and these guys george and tom Found out that if everyone donated into around a pound a year, then that would be enough to feed, you know, all the homeless people in Bath, continuously. Um, equally, their their research found that people were willing to donate that around one pound a week, um, and also around two. I think it was two point six hours of the time. Again, self-report, Can we trust that people will actually do that in reality, mm. probably not. But that was across the board. Mm. That was an average. So, you know, let, let's that go. But we do there. have like
2: we do have a. A huge support for our rag here at um, mm, this definitely. uni, especially, and I'm sure Spar do too. And like we've all like I've attended charity events with SPAR without even realising because it was just appealing anyway. And there's an added bonus that it went to a better cause. Um, also, going back to like what the uni can do, like student volunteers are so important because we do have pre- flexible time. We do like live a comfortable life. It doesn't doesn't burden us at all to have to do that. Also, because like there's something that with the we mentioned housing earlier we are part of the problem when it comes to housing mm. so if anything if we are being absolutist it kind of it's sort of our duty maybe to help those less fortunate because we were part of the problem that started it i don't know how much i agree with that but like that's some of the reasoning behind it um as well as also like on a completely fun level like some of the some some of the things that rag put on are really are just fun and they are relaxed and they're cheap and it gets people involved and Actually, does raise awareness about like Julian House is like a household name here in the city, but also the other big four, which I can't think of right now, which doesn't prove my point. But it's like the job, the job does get done with that, you know,
0: yeah. That so, right? so, Julian House is one of Rag's big four this year, yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure it has been in previous years. And I would hope that it's a, a consistent feature mm. on there in years to come because it, you know, Such the work great, that they do, yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah, critical, um, you know, to. to alleviating yeah, the pressures. Magnitude of the problem, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, working to solutions as well. Um, the the, yeah, the variety of, of work that they do, mm. right through from, you know, the outreach programmes to help people that are physically on the street and also, um, you know, supporting people who are looking to reintegrate and, you know, get back into their own housing. Vocational skills, yeah. Mm. I mean, they've yeah. only touched the surface of what they actually cover, which is yeah, yeah. the
11: point, I guess, that they're such an amazing sort of institution locally.
0: Yeah, mm. no, an absolutely massive charity. Yeah, and and rug do a do a great job, um, but also there's there's opportunities that we we listed in uh, the magazine to, to just volunteer with with Julian House. They were talking about supporting their their cooking mm-hmm. staff or doing some cooking for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the kitchens over weekend, uh, which I can imagine being you know really rewarding work to do. Cecil was, and it was it was to my surprise really because I've heard the whole argument about. Students pushing up housing prices, and I, you know, I never sure that, I was never sure that that was a kind of widely held view, Uh, but it was something that that Cecil kind of kept going back to. Um, And obviously, we all know the prices that we pay for Mm rents. And when the you know, whenever there's new houses that come up on the markets, the the council has now capped, I believe, the the proportion of houses in Bath that can be PHMOs, houses of multiple occupancy. Mm -hmm. But regardless, there's, there's always that kind of fight when a new house comes up on the market. Can Julian House rent it for one of their supported renting schemes? Um, which will, you know, is perceived as a a high risk tenant, definitely unfairly, but that is the perception. Um, for a a fairly low payback in terms of, you know, rent and revenue that the landlord will receive from that. Um, or do they rent it out to students? Which, yeah, again, high risk, but the the money that they get from that, the deposits that I'm sure many will keep (laughs) anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So there is that, that everlasting fight with you know that pressure on housing that we do as students not not our fault cheeky landlords fault but you know that that's how it goes and we do put that pressure on housing prices it was a absolutely fascinating story experience yeah yeah um fascinating story to write uh the the characters that we met along the way writing this um you know made it made the story what it was Mm. gave it that that human edge um which i would hope will really allow our readers to to engage with it Perhaps more so than I have with the other stories. You know it was it, it was it was a story that needy told and um, God have told it and I hope everyone enjoyed reading it and listening to us chat about it for a little while.